Welcome everyone to worship. My name is Craig Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free. It's a joy to have you here in the sanctuary in worship. And those of you joining us online, it's a joy to have you with us as well. Whether you're worshiping with us live or maybe later in the week, we hope this is a, a time where you can experience the, the presence of the holy as we gather together for this moment of wonder and worship together. For those of you who stayed here in the sanctuary last Sunday after worship to pray for the young Timothy Meyer, the reports are good. The surgery was successful. He's recovering well, so we give thanks to God uh, for answered prayer and recovery. So let's continue to keep little Timothy in our prayers and for Adrian and Josh and for Hannah and their whole family over these important weeks that lie ahead for them. So we're blessed that they are being blessed as a part of our community. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I'm sure all of us have been occupied in one form or another with the events that are going on in the Holy Land right now, in, especially in the Gaza. And so a crisis, as we know, is unfolding between uh, the nation of Israel, the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip, and it's heartbreaking as we see the news develop every day. So over the last few weeks, I've really been reflecting on some of the times that I've had in the Holy Land and my encounters both with Israelis and Palestinians and uh, the different religious communities that make up those two bodies of people. And as I was thinking about that today, I thought especially of a time when I was visiting uh, in the West Bank, not in the Gaza, but in the West Bank. And in the West Bank, um, I had led a pilgrimage of people from our church uh, to a city in the West Bank called Nablus. And uh, Nablus is a city, and we'll show it to you on the screen, uh, it is completely under the authority of the Palestinians. And so not only is it directly under the leadership of the Palestinian authority as a government, but it's also where the Palestinians are also responsible for kind of policing their own community. Uh, it's a place where the Israelis do not go. It is a place where the Israeli defense forces do not go. So it's one of the few places where it's solely under Palestinian control in the West Bank. Nablus is a pretty large city and took this picture from the hillside overlooking it um, and it spans off this picture well beyond the frame. I wanted to leave that picture up there for you because when we arrived in Nablus that particular day, you know, we're on a big motor coach and so we pull up into the middle of town, it's lunchtime and we need to let everybody off the coach to go have some lunch. When we get off the coach, we notice that there's a lot of commotion in Nablus for some reason that day. There's a lot of people and we can hear a lot of noise. Everybody gets off the bus and we're ready to go find our lunch. And we're not eating lunch together. It's one of these moments. We've been in the Holy Land at that point in about 10 days. So I simply said to our group before we got off the coach, you have an hour to get lunch, go find it, eat it, and return. And we're going to get back on the coach at a certain time. So I get off the coach, and um, I begin walking to go find lunch. And lo and behold, all 40 people from my church are following me. <laughs> and I keep walking down the street of Nablus, and they're all following me. And then as I get closer, I begin, closer to the center of the square, I begin to discover what the noise is. There's a protest taking place in Nablus by the Palestinians, and they're doing a march for the release of several Palestinians from an Israeli prison. 
And so it's a protest that's like not a riot, but it's somewhere in between those two. The coach is now gone, and there's no way for us to get back on it. So I'm like, well, what could be more conspicuous than 40 Americans wandering around in the middle of Nablus looking for where they're going to get lunch? And so I made the smart decision that every good, caring pastor and shepherd makes for their congregation. I ditched them. I ran as fast as I could. I darted through the protest line. I crossed a couple streets. I zigzagged in and out so the people from my church could not follow me. In the disorientation of them trying to follow me, they all got separated up into smaller groups. So an hour later, after I had sat in a restaurant, I had the most delicious lamb shawarma I've ever had in my life. And I visited with the owner of the store who was a Palestinian Christian whose family has been in Nablus, hold your, hold your pew, for a thousand years. A thousand years his family has lived in Nablus. So we had just a rich conversation about him being part of the Christian community and what that means, and it was wonderful. So we all get back to the coach at the time we're supposed to get there, and I was filled with gratitude for the lunch I had. Not only was the food good, but the fellowship was good. I mean, it was just a rich moment. The 40 people that met me at that coach, they were not filled with gratitude. They were angry. They were upset. How could you ditch us in Nablus? It was a protest. I mean, it was over the top. And I just simply asked them, I go, did you all get lunch? And every single one of them found a place to eat. They all got lunch, and we all got on the coach and went on to our next destination. It was an important reflection for me, even during these past couple weeks, as funny as it might be what, what happened in that moment, that there's just so much tension in that place. Just so much tension that's been boiling over, not for five years, not since the uh, independence and the foundation of the Israeli nation back in the 1940s, which is their independence day, which the Palestinians call Al-Nakba, the day of darkness. I mean, it's just... It's a place that's just boiling over. And so it's any wonder how people could find an opportunity to have gratitude in the midst of that. And especially for my 40 pilgrims that met me back at the coach, I think they were, they were ready to give me a fitting end uh, by the time they encountered me. I'm going to finish that story a little bit later for you. In the middle of this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says, in all things give thanks. In all things, give thanks. When we read a verse like that, it sounds nice. People put it on bumper stickers. There's schmaltzy Christian art everywhere that hangs on people's walls that say, in all, thing, in all things, give thanks. But come on, do we really give thanks in all things? What is it exactly that we're being asked to do? So today I want to take a look at this text where that verse occurs, in all things give thanks, and look at the, the passage of Scripture around it and see if we can learn a little bit more about how you do that. How do you give thanks in all things? So if we walk through this text, we're going to learn a few things, and one of the first things I think that stands out to us is what I would say would be is affirm the positive. Affirm the positive. Now, to be honest, I'm a little bit wired personally to be self-critical. 
Um, and what that means is that um, whenever I receive a piece of negative feedback, like someone didn't like the sermon or they didn't like this or didn't like that, I often take it kind of personally. It's hard for me sometimes to separate those things because in some moments I'm a little bit more self-critical than I need to be. So it's hard for me at times to be positive when I'm feeling a little bit negative, to be honest. So if we're going to practice any sense of gratitude, we're going to have to figure out a way to get more into a default setting of affirming the positive, both internally and externally. So listen to a couple of verses from this text. Here's the first one. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, the apostle says, See that no one repays one another evil for evil, but always seek that what is good for one another and for all people. Now skip to verse 21 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But examine everything, hold firmly to that which is good. So there's this affirmation in this short text that occurs two times about how we're to look for the good, affirm the good, work for the good, and try to advance good. This is the essence of the title of this series of sermons right now, Hunt the Good Stuff. It is literally about how we look for the good moments and the good things and the good people and the good actions, and we affirm those things. Because gratitude will begin to flow from that. There's an author, his name is A.J. Jacobs. He's written a couple of different uh, nonfiction books. And one of the books he wrote a few years ago was about his attempt to thank every person responsible for his morning cup of coffee he would get at the local coffee shop. And so as he started his idea about how he was going to thank the people for making his coffee, he thought, well, that might be the barista, that might be the person who roasted the coffee, uh, that might be the person who grew the coffee. And as he did more and more of the work to prepare to write this book about being thankful for his cup of coffee, he came to find that it required him to thank over 1,000 people. They were all intersected and involved in some way of bringing his cup of coffee to him. And here he is talking a little bit about how that works. Number four is fake it till you feel it. By the end of the project, I was just in a thanking frenzy. So I, was, I would get up and spend a couple hours. I'd write emails, send, uh, send notes, uh, make phone calls, visit people to thank them for their role in my coffee. And some of them, quite honestly, not that into it. The, they would be like, what, what is this? Is this a pyramid scheme? What's dry? What do you want? What are you selling? But most people were surprisingly moved. I remember I called the woman who does the pest control for the warehouse where my coffee is served. Uh, I'm sorry, where my coffee is stored. And, uh, and I said, this may sound strange, but I want to thank you for keeping the bugs out of my coffee. And she said, well, that does sound strange, but you just made my day. And uh, it was like an anti-crank phone call. And it didn't just affect her, it affected me. Because I would wake up every morning in my, my default mood, which is grumpiness, but I would force myself to write a thank you note, and then another, and then another. And what I found was that if you act as if you're grateful, you eventually become grateful for real. The power of our actions <laughs> to change our mind are astounding. 
So often we think that uh, thought changes behavior, but behavior uh, very often changes our thoughts. Uh, I thought you'd like hearing his insight, that last part especially, how sometimes behavior changes our thoughts. That section of his talk is called Fake It Till You Make It, and it's like when you're not feeling particularly full of gratitude, those are the exact moments that maybe you need to think about faking it till you make it where you need to take the actions of gratitude even when you don't feel like it, even when it's not connecting with you, because that posture of gratitude, that posture of looking for the good and affirming the good and saying that this is helpful and valuable and important to me, is important. It is important. So what I'd like you to think about this week in your gratitude journal, which I know many of you have, we handed those out a couple of weeks ago, in your gratitude journal, I'd like you this week to track three positive, good people or events this week. Three. Now, I have written down each one of these cues for you, for your gratitude journal, in the sermon notes part of your bulletin for those of you here in the sanctuary, for those of you online, we have a digital bulletin. You can find the same thing. So these little prompts for you for gratitude are written there. So you can take that home and think about how you might write about that this week. Use your journal this week to track three positive good people or events. The next thing the Apostle Paul tells us is to treasure those in need. To treasure those in need. There, there's actually a cycle that exists between gratitude and generosity between gratitude and generosity, and they spin with each other. And Paul's encouragement is to focus our attention on those who are in need. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, these words, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. It's an unusual verse in verse 14, the way Paul describes this. He says, first, admonish the unruly. That word for unruly means people who do nothing in Greek. It literally is people who do nothing. So you admonish the people who are inert. They're not doing anything. I would hate to preach a whole sermon just on that verse. That'd be a rough day. But that's one of the ways we treasure those in need. Those who are not participating in life, and not just in the life of the church, but life in general, we're to admonish them, we're to help them engage and become part of the living fabric of what it means to be the body of Christ. Then he says to encourage, we should encourage the faint-hearted. That word for faint-hearted literally means to be of small heart. And it's to help that heart grow. In other words, grow in a sense of compassion and loving kindness and faithfulness and affection to people around us. Paul then says to help the weak. And this week in the podcast, I talked about this particular verse, what Paul means when he refers to the weak. And the weak to whom he's referring are those who feel that they must obey the Jewish law as their form of Christian life, that they're legalists. And so that they default into this space of going with kind of the the kindergarten way of living the Christian life, which is I just keep the Ten Commandments and I'm a good person and A-OK. -okay. Paul says that's weakness. And what he's arguing for is a more 
graceful way of living in which we acknowledge we've received mercy from God, we've received grace from God, that Jesus has died and is resurrected for our redemption, that's a different way of living that is not legalistic at all. And then he says, be patient with everyone. Why did he write that? I don't understand. Be patient with everyone. It's the thing I don't do well at all. It's one of my chief failings as a human being is I am impatient with people around me all the time. If you want an example, get in the car with me while I'm driving. <laughs> Vivid how I don't do this. Be patient with everyone. And then he goes on in verse 15, he says, See that no one repays another for evil for evil, because revenge is the opposite of the things he's just told you to do. And that what God is telling us to do in this text. The idea here is to ignite cycles of gratitude through generosity. So if we were to do the things that this text says about those who are in need, if we were to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone, if we acted that way toward others, those are all acts of generosity, friends, then what is the response of those people? Gratitude is the response. So by being generous, we create a cycle of gratitude. And then gratitude creates, you'll never guess, generosity, which creates gratitude, which creates generosity. And that positive cycle that we move through in life can change the way we relate to the people around us. So let's say you're having trouble being, today, sitting here right now, being grateful then if you can't be grateful, go be generous and ignite generosity in other people. At least do that. So here's what I want you to think about this week in your journal. Use your journal this week to track one instance where you ignited a cycle of gratitude. Another way to say that is go be generous somewhere with your time or your money, whatever it might be. Go be generous and see what happens. Track that and see what that cycle of gratitude does. The third thing I think we can do to live a life where we can give thanks in all things is to live in the holy. Now this is the heart of this text, verses 16, 17, and 18. These three verses that are very brief. The first one, verse 16, says, rejoice always. Now being in a state of joy, that means we're in a state of being, not just the state of whether the happenings around us are going our way. In other words, you can have joy and not be happy. And you can be happy and also have joy as well. But happiness isn't what drives joy. And the apostle says to do this always. So does that mean you're always upbeat and positive? No. No. It means that we have a confidence that we worship a God who has us and has the world. Last week we talked about Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says that we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have access to God the Father. That is the source of joy, that God is with us, around us, working through us, that we have been saved by the mighty work of Jesus Christ. That's joy. And that joy is always present in every moment of our life, whether it's good happenings or bad happenings. 
Then Paul goes on and he says then to pray without ceasing. This is hard for us because oftentimes we think of prayer in sort of a a binary sort of way. On, off. I'm praying, I'm not praying. And when you're not praying, are you honestly aware of the fact that you're not praying? And what the Apostle is inviting us to do is perhaps to see prayer a little differently. That instead of living kind of in this binary on-off sort of way, maybe what we're invited to do is to see prayer perhaps from the way God looks at it. God in us is a reality that never changes. So not to go too deep in the theological water and put you to sleep. Is it true that God is with us at all times? At every moment of every day, that the Holy Spirit is within us. And so that Holy Spirit is in constant communion and communication with us all the time, every second of every day. What's at stake isn't whether God's presence is with us. What's at stake is whether or not we're cognizant of that presence, whether or not we're logging the fact that God is speaking and moving in us at every moment. So to pray without ceasing is to, in many ways, to put ourselves in a state of being or consciousness where we realize that every moment of every day, every second of every hour, the holy is in us and with us, speaking and moving. We are never truly unaccompanied. We are always with God. And what God is inviting us to do is to think and act like that's true, because it is. And then we get to the third one, verse 18. In everything, give thanks. Well, it starts to get a little clearer how we do that. We recognize that God is always at work in every moment, good or bad. We acknowledge that God is faithful, that God never leaves us. God is the only person for whom that is true. Every human relationship that we enter into or we leave has a temporariness to it. Even our own death will end some of the human relationships we have, if not all. But the relationship with God is eternal. It never changes. It has always been with us and will always be with us. So even in those moments where friends or family let us down, disappoint, God never does. Even in those moments of deep grief when death and crisis shift and change our realities in deep and profound ways, God is always with us. This is why we give thanks. We can give thanks in everything because the foundational truth of our life never changes. It never changes. What I invite you to do this week in your journal is to use your journal to track how you thanked God in both happiness and pain this week. How you thanked God in happiness and in pain this week. The final key that I think can help us give thanks on all things is the last one, to remain open, to remain open. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, do not quench the spirit, 
Do not utterly reject prophecies, but examine everything, holding firmly to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. You know, the Thessalonians probably had problems with prophecy. He says, don't quench the spirit, don't utterly reject prophecies. They would be exactly like their Corinthian compatriots down in the south of Greece, whereas the Thessalonians are in the north of Greece. I mean, after all, who wants God speaking a hard word of truth to them through a prophet? That line is really short. So what he's suggesting here is that when God speaks or God moves or God begins to to initiate in our lives, whether it's through a word someone else brings to us or through reading scripture sometimes or even in our own quietness of heart and mind where God might speak to us, is that we're not to quench the spirit in that moment. In other words, we're not just to listen to God for the things we want to hear and ignore the things we don't want to hear. But we have to learn how to live a life that is open to however God is moving and working just in that moment. It's hard. You see, age and experience trick us into certainty. Preferences and privilege trick us into certainty. But God's always on the move, and we have to be surprised when the unexpected happens. So on that day back in Nablus, with 40 angry pilgrims looking me in the eye for abandoning them in the middle of a Palestinian protest, we all got on the bus, quiet, a little sheepish, and the bus went to the next destination, which they didn't know where we were going next. And so I took them to a church that we had planned to visit, and here's a picture of the inside of that church in Nablus. This particular church floor, you might see at the very bottom, there's a little mosaic there on the floor that's been there since the 6th century. And so they come into this church, and they're not sure why they're there, and, you know, what's this church about? I, you know, you know, by that point in the pilgrimage, how many churches have they been in, honestly? Oh, Craig's taking us to another church. Great. Well, if you might notice on the left and on the right, you see some passageways there. Those are steps that go down inside that Orthodox church, underneath the altar you see there. And when we went underneath that altar, you would see this icon. And it's the icon of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. And so I turn to the Gospel of John and I read the story of how Jesus encountered this woman at the well. It was Jacob's well, a well that had been handed down through history of the Jewish people who have occupied that land and how that well, remember the story in John's gospel, how animals have drank water from that well for hundreds of years. They've been a part of, you know, that well's been a part of Jewish life and culture since Jacob founded the well. Even the woman at the well says, our ancestor Jacob drank from this well. So I finished reading the story, and when we were reading the story, they realized what we were standing next to. Now, in Jesus' earthly ministry, there's actual certainty about two places Jesus actually was. Like, we know the literal spot he stood on at a moment in time. One of them is the synagogue in Capernaum. 
which is where Jesus did some of his early miracles. The second place we know exactly where Jesus was standing is Jacob's well. So they lowered the bucket down, filled it with water, hoisted it back up, and all of my angry pilgrims drank from Jacob's well that day. It was wonderful. But you have to be ready to experience God in the unexpected. The, the things you never saw coming. After being in the middle of a practical riot in Nablus, the number one thing my pilgrims wanted to do was get out of Nablus. And instead, they were blessed with Jacob's well. It was a great day of gratitude. In all the years since that time, I talked to the pilgrims who were part of that moment, and that moment is one of the moments they give the greatest thanks for. Being in that same place where Jesus had that conversation with the woman at the well, and he said that he could give her living water. What a great moment. So how do we give thanks in all circumstances, in all situations, at all times? Well, it requires us to make gratitude our default posture in life. Because when we have that kind of posture, it allows us to acknowledge our dependency on Jesus every single day, that he is our hope and our salvation. To be honest, most of us spend most days going around living our life, doing the things we're doing. And rather than saying thank you to God, we actually engage in a lot of behaviors where we simply are telling God, you're welcome. And what we need to learn how to do is to acknowledge the deep, deep sense of gratitude we must have for what God has done. It's for this reason we adorn our spaces we worship in with crosses, tables, where we serve communion. We put these things here to remind us visually of something every time we come into the place. That our posture is never to say to God, you're welcome. Our posture with God is to always say, thank you. So let's do that now. We give you thanks, God, that you've gathered us into this time and space so that we might give you our thanks and praise. Our hearts are filled with gratitude for all that you have done for us, all the ways in which you have moved in our midst. And we give you thanks for this meal that you have set before us by which we remember with thanksgiving the greatest act you ever did for us, saving us from our sins and giving us eternal life. We remember the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, how he took the bread, he gave thanks to you, he gave it to the disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and after he returned thanks to you, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and upon these gifts of bread and wine. May we receive them this day with thanksgiving in our hearts, ready to leave this place and leave this moment of worship as a people whose default is gratitude 
gratitude to you for all that you have done. We pray, God, that you would fill us now with your Holy Spirit, that we might encounter the very Lord Jesus himself, who was revealed in the breaking of the bread. For this we give you thanks and praise and glory as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.